Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Naked Security Podcast. I'm Paul Ducklin. I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Chester Wisniewski from Vancouver. Hello, Chet. Hello, Duck. Uh, Good to be back on the podcast. Unfortunately, the reason you're back on this particular one is that Doug and his family have got the dreaded lurgy. They're having a coronavirus outbreak in their house. Thank you so much for stepping up at very short notice, literally this afternoon. Check, can you jump in? So let's crack straight on to the first topic of the day, which is something that you and I discussed in part in the mini podcast episode we did last week. And that's the issue of the Uber breach, the Rockstar breach, and this mysterious cybercrime group known as Lapsus Dollar. Where are we now with this ongoing saga? Well, I I think the answer is that we don't know, but certainly um, there have been things that I will say will per- have been perceived to be developments, which is I have not heard of any further hacks after the Rockstar Games hack of, or Take-Two Interactive hack uh, that occurred uh, just over a week, uh, a week ago as of the time of this recording. There has a, a underage individual in the United Kingdom was arrested that uh, some people have drawn some dotted lines saying is sort of the linchpin of the lapsus group and that, that that person is detained by the UK police. But because they're a minor, I'm not sure we really know much of anything. Yes, there were a lot of conclusions jumped to. Some of them may be reasonable, but I did see a lot of articles that were talking as though facts had been established when they hadn't. The person who was arrested was a 17-year-old from Oxfordshire in England And that is exactly the same age and location of the person who was arrested in March, who was allegedly connected to Lapsus Dollar. But we still don't know whether there's any truth in that, because the main source for placing a Lapsus Dollar person in Oxfordshire is some other unknown cybercriminal that they fell out with who doxed them online. So I think we have to be, as you say, very careful about claiming as facts things that may well be true, but may well not be true. And in fact, don't really affect the precautions you should be taking anyway. No, and you know, we'll talk about this again in one of the other stories in a minute, but when the heat gets turned up after one of these big attacks, a lot of times uh, people go to ground whether anyone's been arrested or not. And we certainly saw that, um, I I think in the other podcasts we mentioned, the LulzSec hacking group uh, that was quite famous 10, 10 years or so ago for doing similar stunt hacks, I would call them, just things to embarrass companies and publish a bunch of information about them publicly, even if they perhaps didn't intend to extort them or do some other crime to to gain any financial advantage for themselves. Several times, different members of that group, one member would be arrested. But there clearly were, I think in the end, five or six different members of that group. And they would all stop hacking for a few weeks because, of course, uh, you know, the police were suddenly very interested so this is not unusual. I mean, the, the fact is, all of these organizations have, have succumbed to social engineering in some way, with the exception, I won't say with the exception, because again, we don't know, we don't really understand how they got into Rockstar Games. But I think this is an opportunity to go back and review how and where you're using multi-factor authentication, and perhaps to turn the dial up a notch on maybe how you might have deployed it. In the case of Uber, 
They were using a push notification system, which uh, displays a prompt on your phone that says, somebody's trying to connect to our portal. Do you want to allow or block? And it's as simple as just tapping the big green button that says allow. And, and, and it sounds like they, in this case, they, they fatigued someone into getting annoyed after getting 700 of these prompts on their phone that they just said allow to make it stop happening. I wrote a piece on the Sophos News blog discussing a few of the different lessons that can be taken away from, from Uber's laps and what Uber might be able to implement to prevent these same things from occurring again. Unfortunately, I think the reason that a lot of companies go for that well, you don't have to put in a six-digit code, you just tap the button, is it's the only way that they could make employees willing enough to want to do 2FA at all, which seems a little bit of a pity. Well, and the way we're asking you to, to do it today beats the heck out of carrying an RSA token on your keychain like we used to do before. One for every account. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't miss carrying the little uh, fob on my key ring that uh, I think I have one around here somewhere that says dead bat on the screen, but they didn't spell dead with an A. It was D-E-D bat. Yes, it's only six digits, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, things have improved and there's a lot of very sophisticated multi-factor tools out there now in addition to things like I, I always recommend um, using FIDO tokens whenever possible. But outside of that, even in software systems, these things can be designed to work different ways for different applications. Sometimes maybe you just need to click OK because it's not something super sensitive. But when you're doing the sensitive thing, maybe you do have to enter a code. And sometimes the code goes in the browser. Or sometimes the code goes into your phone. But all of it, I've never spent more than 10 seconds authorizing myself to get into something when multi-factor has popped up. And I can spare 10 seconds for the safety and security of not just my company's data, but our employees and our customers' data. Couldn't agree more, Chester. Our next story concerns a very large telco in Australia called Optus. Now, they got hacked. That wasn't a 2FA hack. That was perhaps what you might call lower-hanging fruit. But in the background, there was, a, there was a whole load of shenanigans when law enforcement got involved, wasn't there? So tell us what happened there, to the best of your knowledge. Exactly. I'm, I'm not uh, um, read in on this in any detailed manner because we're, we're not involved in uh, the, the attack. And I think they're still investigating, obviously, aren't they? Because it was, what, millions of records. Yeah, we, I, I don't know the precise number of records that were stolen, but it impacted over 9 million customers, according to Optus. And that could be because they're not quite sure which customers' information may have been accessed. And it was, and it was sensitive data, unfortunately. It included names, addresses, uh, email addresses, birth dates, and identity documents, which is presumably passport numbers and or Australian-issued driver's licenses. So. That is a pretty good trove for somebody looking to do identity theft. It is not a good situation. The advice to victims uh, that receive a notification from Optus is that if they, are, they had used their passport, that they ought to replace it. That is not a cheap thing to do. And unfortunately, in this case, the perpetrator is alleged to have gotten the data by using an unauthenticated API endpoint, which in essence means uh, a programmatic interface facing the, in the internet that did not require even a password that allowed him to serially walk through all of the customer records and download and siphon out all that data. So that's like I go to example.com slash user record slash 00001 and I get something, and I think, oh, that's interesting, and then I go two, three, four, five, six, and there they all are. 
Absolutely. And, you know, we, we were discussing uh, in preparation for the podcast how this kind of echoed the past when a, a, a hacker known as Weave had done a similar attack against AT&T during the launch of the original iPhone, uh, enumerating many celebrities' uh, personal information from an, AT, an AT&T uh, API endpoint. Apparently, uh, we don't always learn lessons and we make the same mistakes again. Because he famously or infamously was charged for that and convicted and went to prison. And then it was overturned on appeal, wasn't it? Because I think the court formed the opinion that although he may have broken the spirit of the law, I think it was felt that he hadn't actually done anything that really involved any sort of digital breaking and entering. Well, the precise law in the United States, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, um, is very specific about you're breaching that act when you exceed your authority or you have unauthorized access to a system. And it's hard to say it's unauthorized when it's wide open to the world. Now, I'm understanding the Optus case, the person who is supposed to have got the data seemed to have expressed an interest in selling it, at least until the Australian Federal Police butted in. <laughs> is that correct? Yeah, he had posted to a dark market forum offering up the records which he claimed were on. 11.2 million victims uh, offering it for sale for $1 million, which, uh, of, well, I should say 1 million not real dollars, 1 million Monero, worth of Monero. Obviously, Monero is a privacy token that is commonly used by criminals to avoid uh, being identified when you pay the, the ransom or make a purchase from them. Within 72 hours, when the AFP began investigating and made a public statement, he seems to have rescinded his offer to sell the data. So perhaps he's gone to ground, as I said in the previous story, uh, in hopes that maybe the AFP won't find him. But I suspect whatever digital cookie crumbs he's left behind, the AFP is hot on the trail. So if we ignore the data that's gone and the criminality of ac or otherwise of accessing it, what's the moral of the story for people providing RESTful APIs or web-based access APIs to customer data? Well, I, you know, I'm not a programming expert, but it seems like some authentication is in order to ensure that people are only accessing perhaps their own customer record if there's a reason for that to be publicly accessible. In addition to that, it would appear that a significant number of records were stolen before anything was noticed. And no different than we should monitor, say, rate limiting on our own authentication against our VPNs or our web apps to ensure that somebody's not making a brute force attack against our authentication services. You would kind of hope that once you queried a million records through a service that seems to be designed for you to look up one, perhaps some monitoring is in order. Absolutely. That's a lesson that we could all have learned from way back in the, the Chelsea Manning hack, isn't it? Where she copied, what was it, 30 years worth of State Department cables onto a CD with headphones on, pretending it was a music CD. Britney Spears, if I recall. Well, that was written on the CD, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so it kind of gave a reason why it was rewritable. Well, you know, I just put music on it. And... At no point did any alarm bell go off. You, know, you can imagine maybe if you copy the first month worth of data, well, that might be okay, a year, a decade maybe, but 30 years, you'd hope that by then the smoke alarm would be ringing really loudly. Yeah, unauthorized backups, you might call them, I guess. Yes, which is, of course, a huge issue uh, in modern-day ransomware, isn't it? 
where a lot of the crooks are exfiltrating data in advance to give them extra blackmail leverage. So when you come back and say, I don't need your decryption key, I've got backups, they say, ah, yes, but we have your data. So we'll spill it if you don't give us the money. In theory, you'd hope that it would be possible to spot the fact that all your data was being backed up, but it wasn't following the usual cloud backup procedure that you use. I mean, it's easy to say that, but it is the kind of thing that you need to look out for. There was a report this week that, in fact, um, as bandwidth has become so prolific, one of the ransom groups is no longer encrypting. In fact, they're taking all your data off your network, just like the extortion groups have done for a while. But then they're wiping your systems rather than encrypting it and going, no, 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 we'll give you the data back when you pay. That's X matter, isn't it? Yeah. Why bother with all this complexity of elliptic curve cryptography and AES? There's so much bandwidth out there that instead of, uh, oh dear, shouldn't laugh, instead of saying, pay us the money and we'll send you the 16-byte decryption key, send us the money and we'll give you the files back. It emphasizes again how we need to be looking for the tools and the behaviors of someone doing malicious things in our network, because they may be authorized to do some things like Chelsea Manning, or they may be intentionally open, unauthenticated things that do have some purpose, but we need to be watching for the behavior of their abuse because we can't just watch for the encryption. We can't just watch for somebody password guessing. We, we need to watch for these larger activities, that, these patterns that indicate something malicious is occurring. Absolutely. As I think you said in the mini-sode that we did, it's no longer enough just to wait for alerts to pop up in your dashboard to say something bad happened. You need to be aware of the kind of behaviours that are going on in your network that might not yet be malicious, but yet are a good sign that something bad is about to happen. Because, as always, prevention is an awful lot better than cure. Chester, I'd like to move on to another item. That story is something I wrote up on Naked Security Today, simply because I myself had got confused. My newsfeed was sort of buzzing with stories about WhatsApp Zero Day. Yet, when I looked into all the stories, they all seemed to have a common primary source, which was a fairly generic security advisory from WhatsApp itself, going back to the beginning of the month. The clear and present danger that the news headlines led me to believe turned out to be not at all true, as far as I could see. Tell us what happened there. You say zero day. I say show me the victims. Where are they? <laughs> well, sometimes you may not be able to reveal that, right? Well, but, but in, in that case, you would, you would tell us that. And, and that is a normal practice in, in the industry for disclosing vulnerabilities that you'll frequently see on Patch Tuesday, Microsoft make a statement such as, this vulnerability is known to have been exploited in the wild meaning somebody out there figured out this flaw and started attacking it. Then we found out and went back and fixed it. That's a zero day. Um, finding a flaw in software that is not being exploited or there's no evidence has ever been exploited and proactively fixing it is called good engineering practices. And it's something that almost all software does. In fact, I recall you mentioning the recent Firefox update, proactively fixing a lot of vulnerabilities that the Mozilla team fortunately documents and reports them publicly. So we know they've been fixed despite the fact no one out there was known to ever be attacking them. I think it's important that we keep back that word zero day to indicate just how clear and present a danger is. And calling everything a zero day because 
it could cause remote code execution kind of loses the effect of what I think is a very useful term. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I mean, that's not to diminish the importance of applying these updates, of course. Anytime you see remote code execution, somebody may now go back and figure out how to attack those bugs in the, in the people that haven't updated their app. So it's still an urgent thing to make sure that you do get the update. But because of the nature of a zero day, it, 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 it really doesn't deserve its own term. Yeah, trying to make zero day stories out of things that are interesting and important but not necessarily a clear and present danger is just confusing, particularly if the fix actually came out a month before and you're presenting it as a story as though this is happening right now. Anyone going to their iPhone or their Android is going to be looking and thinking, I've got a version number way ahead of that. What is going on here? Confusion does not help when it comes to trying to do the right thing in cybersecurity. And if you find a security flaw that could be a zero day, Please report it, especially if the, there's a bug bounty program offered by the organization that develops the software. I did see this afternoon, somebody over the weekend discovered a vulnerability in OpenSea, which is a platform for trading non-fungible tokens or NFTs, which I can't recommend to anyone. But however, uh, somebody found an a, 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 a unpatched vulnerability that was critical in their system over the weekend, reported it, and received a $100,000 bug bounty today. So it is worth being ethical and turning these things in when you do discover them to prevent them from turning into a zero day when somebody else finds them. Absolutely. You protect yourself. You protect everybody else. You do the right thing by the vendor. Yet, through responsible disclosure, you do provide that mini sword of Damocles that means that unethical vendors who in the past might have swept bug reports under the carpet can't do so because they know that they're going to get outed in the end. So they actually might as well do something about it now. Chester, let's move on to our last topic for this week. And that is the issue of what happens to data on devices when you don't really want them anymore. And the story I'm referring to is the $35 million fine that was issued to Morgan Stanley for an incident going all the way back to 2016. There are several aspects to the story. It's fascinating reading, actually, the, the way it all unfolded and the sheer length of time that this data lived on in floating around in unknown locations on the internet. But the main part of the story is that they had, I think it was something like 4,900 hard disks, including disks coming out of RAID arrays, server disks with client data on. Oh, we don't want these anymore, so we'll send them away to a company which will wipe them and then sell them, so we'll get some money back. And in the end, the company may have wiped some of them, and some of them they may have actually just sent for sale on an auction site without wiping them at all. We keep making the same old mistakes. Yeah, I mean, uh, the very first HIPAA violation, I believe, that was fined in the United States, the healthcare legislation about protecting patient information was for stacks of hard disks in a janitorial closet uh, that were unencrypted. And that's the key word to begin the process of what to do about this, right? I mean, for one, there is not a disk in the world that should not be full disk encrypted at this point. Every iPhone has been for as long as I can remember. Most all Androids have been for as long as I can remember, unless you're still picking up Chinese burner phones with Android 4 on them. And desktop computers, unfortunately, are not encrypted frequently enough, but they should be no different than those server hard disks, those RAID arrays. Everything should be encrypted to begin with to make the first step in the process difficult, if not impossible. 
followed by the destruction of that device uh, if and when it reaches the end of its useful life. For me, one of the key things in this Morgan Stanley story is that five years after this started, it started in 2016, and in June last year, discs from that auction site that had gone into the great unknown were still being bought back by Morgan Stanley that had shown up. They were still unwiped, unencrypted, obviously, working fine, all the data intact. Unlike bicycles that get thrown in the canal or garden waste that you put in the compost bin, data on hard disks may not decay, possibly for a very long time. So if in doubt, rub it out completely, eh? Yeah, pretty much. Unfortunately, uh, that's the way it is. I mean, we like to, I like to see things get reused as much as possible to reduce our e-waste, but uh, data storage is not one of those things that we can afford to take that chance. Could be a real data saver, not just for you, but for your employer and your customers and the regulator. Chester, thank you so much for stepping up again at very, very, very short notice. Thank you so much for sharing with us your insights particularly your look at that Opta story. And as usual, until next time, stay secure. Stay secure. <laughs>